I really rely on the expertise of the team and I value input. I also value contradiction. That's the voice of Ankit Mahadevia, President and CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Sparrow Therapeutics. Listen in now to hear my conversation with Ankit, his thoughts about leadership in biopharma and building a better future for coping with infectious diseases. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. This afternoon, I'm speaking with Ankit Mahadevia, President and CEO of Cambridge-based Sparrow Therapeutics. Ankit, welcome to BioBoss. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Ankit, how did you find yourself at Sparrow Therapeutics? Non-linearly. You know, sort of did one thing after another, and I ended up in, in a place where, where, where uh, that's very exciting. Um, you know, going all the way back to university, you know, what I did know was that I wanted to have an impact in healthcare. Wasn't sure if that was on the uh, science or clinical side or that was on the policy side. And so, and you'll notice a theme here. I ended up doing both. You know, I studied both biology and health economics and ultimately took my first job out of university as I did that, thinking that I could make a difference in the health policy arena. So I joined uh, the U.S. Government Accountability Office and that plus, you know, a, a subsequent uh, tour of duty in the, in the Senate Health Education Labor Pensions Committee uh, really gave me a flavor for that. And I felt I was making a difference, but probably not on the pace that got me excited. The other thing was is certainly my patience is more limited than that. And so ultimately, after having that experience, uh, moved on to what every other liberal arts major does when they don't know what to do with their career, which is uh, management consulting. And it was in that period of time, again, focused in health, where I continued to be inspired. Uh, one inspiration was uh, some of the cardiologists we worked with as we were trying to get drug-looting stents to the market. And I was just inspired by the way that they could have a profound impact on a patient's life on a very personal level uh, just through a particular intervention. And like a good Asian, I had done all of my prerequisites for uh, medical school. And I really had a hard think about, because uh, really, for based on where I was in my career at the time, it was now or never. And I, I decided it would be now. And I decided to train, and I ended up at Johns Hopkins. Uh, but I didn't stop there in terms of parallel processing. I took a very long and circuitous route through Hopkins, uh, maybe set a record when I was there. But along with doing my medical training, uh, I went back to Capitol Hill. Uh, I went to McKinsey. Um, I went to uh, Wharton Business School to get my MBA. And then after that, I uh, was at Genentech uh, and learned how to do business development from the excellent team there. And after all of those adventures trying to figure out how I could make a difference in healthcare, my dean called me and said, look, are you, are you, what are you going to do? Are you, are you coming back or are you not? Because I have folks that want your spot. So I said, fine, I'm coming back and I'm going to go back. So I did the rest of my training and, you know, it set my sights on being an ophthalmologist because, again, it allowed me not to choose. I could be the eyes surgeon. I could be the eyes physician. I could be the eyes oncologist. And that was fascinating uh, to me. Uh, but before that, I got waylaid uh, by a colleague who uh, – was as uh, multi-interested as me, happened to be an entrepreneur, as well as the chair of the Hopkins Pain Service, and was a guy named Jim Campbell, who had got funding to start a neuropathic pain company across the street from my apartment in, uh, in downtown Baltimore. And, um, you know, I was uh, just gotten married at the time, and the fact that he was giving me a salary was quite attractive as I was paying off wedding bills. And so that, plus the curiosity of something new, um, you know, motivated me to jump in and help him start the business. And I got a flavor for uh, starting companies that I, I've come back to later. 
And so after I'd done that, I was ready to begin my, my future training and got uh, connected with the team at Atlas Venture. And Atlas was shifting their model from more traditional VC investing to company formation. And the idea of building something was new and exciting and appealed to me. Also, my wife and I were ready to see something new after having been in Baltimore for a while. And so what I thought was going to be you know, a 12-month tour of duty is now an affiliation that's gone on for over 12 years. And in that time, um, you know, the, the teams that I've worked with have built uh, over uh, built nine companies. Uh, four have uh, gone on to sell to partners and three uh, went public. And uh, in 2016, um, I certainly had really enjoyed building companies, but I found that the hardest thing uh, in terms of uh, the process was letting go just as the company was really hitting uh, escape velocity. And so I decided as we were getting three off of the ground around 2013 to 2015 timeframe, that I would, I would pick one and just see what that escape velocity would feel like. And so I sort of went through this process of, of trying to assess what would be the best place for me to go. And ultimately, I chose Sparrow. And in terms of why, I mean, there's both an emotional and an irrational component to it. You know, the rational one is that it was unique in that, you know, rather than sort of starting with a platform technology where you try to apply it to patients, it was a uh, wide world. Basically, uh, you know, the thesis was we think infectious disease is underserved. There's some great products out there that need development and the world's our oyster. Go forth and find what you can. And that freedom to build in an arena that really matters uh, mattered a lot to me. And going back to medical training, uh, certainly cardiology was, uh, you know, interventional cardiology was one place, but surgery and ophthalmology and infectious disease all appealed for me to me for the same reason, which is that in a very short time, you can change a patient's life. You know, as an ophthalmologist, if you take out a cataract, the patient goes from being blind to sighted. And in the uh, setting of infectious disease, if you find the right antibiotic, patient goes from being intubated to having breakfast with their kid, kids in a matter of uh, days and sometimes even hours. And so to me, that was exciting. Um, and also a large opportunity uh, to go where others haven't gone before and create a lot of value. Emotionally for me, it was also it was sort of, I, I like in building companies to making chili. You start with good ingredients, you make them in sort of a similar fashion. And depending on the day uh, and where you got the ingredients from, they taste all good but different. And somehow I just kept coming back to this bowl of chili. And I credit it to the board that we, we built and the teammates that we have, many of whom were, were there at around the time I was trying to figure this out. And they're still with us today, and, and uh, it's been a really exciting journey. When you made that decision to be a CEO, did that feel like a natural decision after it was made? I, I wasn't sitting when I was 10 years old thinking I was going to be a CEO. You know, I, I was, uh, you know, maybe it was a, we didn't have any physicians in the family, but I was always interested in medical science. I always thought I was going to be a, a physician back then. And, but ultimately, you know, the things that appealed to me, you know, both the science, but also working with others and the idea of building something bigger than yourself and just building, period, really suit me. And ultimately, to me, that is the job, which is to create a set of build, a set of operational understanding, values, culture, and belief in the mission that sustains an organization. And the joy is doing that and then watching the whole become greater than the sum of the parts. So that's intoxicating. And I can't say, uh, John, that, that I, I had any foresight into this, 
But as I did it, because it's what the companies needed, uh, it really grew on me. As as and there was sort of a both for this and in other companies where I've been operationally involved, you sort of start to realize this is probably what I ought to be doing. Of all the choices that you had, of all the different uh, things you were alert to, all the possibilities, how was it that you decided? You know, I think I want to build this thing at Sparrow as opposed to maybe go to a bigger, more established company or create something different. I'll give you a lot of rational reasons why that was the case, but there's just something that drew me to this place, really. Um, you know, both the people as well as the breadth of the mission and the, you know, opportunity to take a blank sheet of paper. I think historically, as we build companies, we often take a technology and identify ways to apply it to patients. Here we start with unmet need, and it's really find whatever you need to be able to build a comprehensive approach to that unmet need. And frankly, there's just a part of me that, um, you know, likes going in places that may be a little less well-traveled. You, you know, when, when uh, I take the kids to, uh, you, you know, their, their, their school carnivals and celebrations, I, I, I go where the lines aren't, you know. And, and it's sort of the, uh, you know, that, that appeals to me as well, just because I think that infectious disease is so broad, it touches everything. There's such good medicines that you can learn about early uh, and uh, I think that it's been some time since we've had a comprehensive approach to uh, treating uh, the threat of infectious disease. And, and it's not that we weren't inspired ahead of, you know, the current crisis that our country's facing. But now more than ever, it feels like absolutely uh, what we should be doing in service of what the public health needs. I think our listeners are always curious, what is it that a CEO does during the day? And I know the easy answer to that is it depends what day. But tell me, what's it like to be a CEO of a biopharma company? It's the most fun that, that I've ever had. Uh, like you say, every uh, day is different. And you get a, you know, on the one hand, I, one may be thinking about the supply chain um, issues in Asia. One may be thinking about the statistical analysis of a particular clinical trial or thinking about interviewing ad agencies for a potential drug launch. And so the, the variety of one's diet is, is intoxicating depending on how you're wired. And I, I really do like that variety. Uh, I think that the job speaks to, uh, and we, we had an opportunity to write about this as well. Um, you know, if one is delegating effectively, there's really three things that a CEO does in, 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 at all. Uh, one is uh, motivator in chief, and, and that's, you know, setting a culture and values and ensuring that all decisions that are made stay true to those. Uh, second is focusing, a focuser in chief, and that's setting the strategy uh, that's in service of the mission and those values. And then finally is uh, what, what, what we like to call balancer in chief, which is, uh, you know, making those tough calls only a CEO can make that balance uh, benefits and costs at an enterprise level. Uh, because the CEO is uniquely positioned across all of the functions and disciplines uh, to make those calls. And sometimes those calls are big enough that, you know, ultimately for every call, the CEO is accountable. But in some, one needs to be directly uh, hands-on. But that's it. If you're doing more, it's our opinion that you're probably not delegating uh, effectively. I've heard it also described as uh, uh, chief education officer. That's a, that's a good point, John. There's a lot of... Uh, you know, and you asked me, you know, what, what, um, you know, how I decided to take this line of work. Uh, there's also an element in my experience that, that both from, a, um, you know, as much education as, as we've been through, as well as 
uh, prior careers in college, I you know was training to be a, a teacher. I was a graduate assistant in in uh, in business school. There's an element of, as you note, uh, teaching uh, that really permeates the culture at Sparrow, not just with me, but also more broadly. I think people really have a joy of sharing what they know and ensuring that folks uh, both incorporate that and are able to do it. Uh, and, and I think that that's an energizing part of the job whereby, you know, something that you or a colleague may have thought was important sort of gets, um, you know, becomes part of the DNA of the organization. You see that gene expression uh, everywhere. That's, that's, uh, that's great. And that makes me think of management style. You know, different people find the different ways of working with people work for them, not for somebody else. How would you describe what works for you as far as a management style? Yeah, and and it's keeping with the culture we built. It's it's very collaborative. You know, we have a couple of uh, sayings at, at Sparrow that sort of permeate our our values. One is uh, be the expert, and you know the way that we the way that you know you know we like to run our teams collectively, and that that includes me is is really building upon the expertise of each individual team member. Certainly, in a small company, um, it's true that. Any expertise you bring in is typically the foremost expert in your company in that uh, as you grow, that that starts to be less the case, but certainly uh, during this stage. And so we have the saying, be the expert. You know, no one's going to know more about your discipline than you. And so we, we really build off of that expertise. You know, our team, uh, our, our, our senior team, certainly, and, and our broader company generally has just so much experience in the anti-infective space that we really respect each other's expertise that way. Uh, secondly, is that I'm very uh, fastidious about the involvement I have and the calls that I actually make versus the experts. My view is that the closer you are to the data, whether that's scientific or market data or otherwise, the better equipped you are to make decisions. I can certainly be helpful in terms of enterprise context or unconscious biases that might come to play. But ultimately, if, if you know it's a clinical decision, our chief medical officer has decades of experience and is probably best equipped to make the recommendation. I mean, it's sort of the statement that we make. It may be your call, but it's my accountability. So my job is to ensure that we're making the decision with the right unity of motivation and with the right understanding of the goals. But in terms of, for example, deciding whether our study should be 1,200 patients or 1,300, I'm not that guy. That's, that's a clinical call. And the same as it goes with commercial and development and science and finance. Um, all of those. Um, I really rely on the expertise of the team and I value input. I also value uh, contradiction. You know, I'm very mindful of the quote, uh, uh, intimidation and awe of the office, right? Just by having the title CEO can, you know, quell dissent and not create a healthy debate. Uh, it's one of my requirements as we add to the team. I want people to challenge me because if I'm the one that has the best idea in the room, uh, and I'm not the expert, that's probably not the right place to be. I sort of think of it like an art gallery where, you know, our experts, whether they be, you know, regardless of discipline, are the artists. My job is to make sure that the lights are on, and if they need paint, they should ask me. If they need canvas, they should ask me. If they need me to clean the floor uh, so that they have space to paint, they should ask me. That's my job, right, is, is to ensure that that's the case. The other thing I can do for them is tell them what the artist down the hall is painting so they don't paint the same thing. But that's my job, right? Really, the, 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 the beautiful work that we do in making medicines comes from them, not from me. And, and that's sort of how I think about it. 
And I would say also there's probably a tradition among gallery owners that they have a fairly disciplined eye and a fairly acute sense of the work itself. So we'll just assume that that's something you've got as well. I, I think that's right. And, and though what I would say is that if we've chosen the right team members and delegated well, uh, we have even better trained eyes than me on a specific discipline. What's new at Sparrow Therapeutics? Uh, we have a, a very uh, exciting program. Uh, it's a very it's, it's exciting time as any at, at Sparrow. So we we are developing multiple medicines treating uh, large unmet needs and in infectious disease, uh, all of which are in the clinic and all of which are delivering uh, important results coming forward. Uh, our lead program is uh, uh, an oral agent called Tebipenem. Uh, it's designed with the potency of IV medicines we use for patients with serious gram-negative infections, but available in pill form. And, and the fundamental need we're trying to address is that for millions of patients in the U.S. alone each year, there are infections that should and could be treated outside of a healthcare institution that are not, but for the lack of an effective oral therapy. You know, the, the entire infectious disease establishment has really pushed to try to drive outpatient treatment of important infections just because of a logistics and patient safety, patient convenience and outcomes perspective. What's been missing for gram-negative infections is an effective tool to do so. And Tebby Penniman is in the midst of enrolling its pivotal study uh, for the treatment of complicated urinary tract infections that we expect uh, in the third quarter of this year. And should we be successful, we'll be in the process of developing a new drug application to get that launched on the market in the U.S. Now more than ever, it's incredibly important uh, to acknowledge the frustration that patients and physicians feel when they really shouldn't be treating their patients in the hospital. Or if you're a patient, you really shouldn't be there. Um, but you have to be. And I think that, you know, in recent events, but also just generally, the capacity constraints and cost implications of treating our patients within the walls of a healthcare institution uh, have been laid bare. We really should be treating as many patients as possible outpatient. We just need the TEALS tools to do it. Along with that, we have a pipeline of medicines to treat complementary unmet needs. 720 helps our patients with a really debilitating lung disease called NTM disease that uh, is, is shows up in your shower head. Most people are able to inhale it and clear it. But, you know, some folks either with anatomic or immunological or other difficulties with their lung can't. And it becomes a slow growing infection that really upends patients' entire lives. You know, we were lucky to have three very brave women come and share their experience with their disease and the pain and the uh, discomfort and the side effects of the treatment that she was having moved her to tears. So, you know, we did what we're instinctively doing, which is hand her a tissue. She couldn't even accept the tissue because depending on the tissue, it can exacerbate her symptoms. So these patients are in a prison made by this, uh, this mycobacterial infection. We have an oral agent that can do better than what these patients have. And, and then finally, uh, we have an IV medicine that's uh, helping patients with serious infections in the ICU, uh, which where evolution continues to drive uh, worse and worse infections that kill people, and we have an option. So, uh, you know, really what we pride ourselves on at Sparrow is really being about the mission, which is to provide better options for patients and to build a comprehensive leader in the field. And, you know, as we see these drugs perform in the clinic, it just feels very tangible and real. And it's inspiring for us to see what uh, the future holds. 
When you have the opportunity to tell the story, as you've been telling it to me here, sometimes in a really condensed version, sometimes more opportunity, more time, there will be those times when people come up afterwards, and I'm sure they will say, oh, thank you, Aunt Kid, now I understand what Sparrow's about, but you'll think to yourself, based on what they say, no, that's not what I was intending. Sometimes they will have filters on, biases, and then your job sometimes is to say, well, actually, it's let me let me redirect. It's actually this. So when that happens, what do people mishear or misunderstand, and then how do you help them to understand? So to me, John, the, the, the most uh, fundamental misunderstanding about the Sparrow Pipeline is, is where it's positioned and how that speaks to the growth of both the products and the companies. You know, I, I think that there's been much in the lay press even about uh, challenges that some specific antibiotic products have had uh, as they move from development to commercialization. And, and I think that, you know, what's important to understand is that uh, we have built our pipeline with that in mind. You know, the fundamental drivers of sustainability, uh, as we look historically at the data, is number one, being positioned outside of the hospital, and I'll go into that in, in a minute. And secondly, and this is most important, is going after unmet needs for which there's no generic comparator. Those two have been the hallmarks of sustainability for infectious disease products, whether that's Cubicin or that's drugs like Sovaldi or, or drugs like, uh, as there's emerging Insmed's Aircase and others. Uh, all of those have those elements in common. And I think that where the headlines really magnify is the challenges we face, particularly for hospital-based drugs. So those hospital-based drugs have two particular challenges that our pipeline doesn't share. Uh, one is that they're reimbursed in the hospital, which is a fixed payment system. So essentially, a patient admitted with a given diagnosis uh, is reimbursed at a fixed level, no matter how long they stay, no matter what agents are used in their care. And um, that really curtails the innovation um, that can be invested in by the hospital, because essentially... The more expensive the medication, the more it comes directly out of that hospital's bottom line. Number two is that a number of these IV-based hospital agents are designed to treat infections that are still, fortunately for society, relatively rare, right? And medicine has evolved to the point where we don't use new agents where old agents could do the trick. We only use new agents where new agents are necessary. And fortunately for society, but unfortunately for these products, there aren't enough of these types of infections that only these medicines can treat to be financially sustainable. So what we've done, learning from all of that as we curated our pipeline, is to focus on large unmet needs. So, you know, the oral, the patients that need new oral agents for CUTI number in the millions, over 2 million in fact. That's number one. Number two is we're not reimbursed in that same fixed fee setting. So what people get wrong is that infectious disease isn't a monolith there are different subsectors within infectious disease, each with their challenges and opportunities. And the key to leadership in the field is to focus on those arenas in infectious disease that are synonymous with sustainability and work with partners on those that aren't. And that has been our philosophy from day one, is to build our, 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 our story on the basis of agents like Tebby Penham and 720 that are sustainable and collaborate uh, with folks as wide-ranging as Gates to the Department of Defense on agents that aren't for drugs like for TB or for very rare serious infections like pseudomonas infections. What kind of partners make a good fit to Sparrow? So we're fortunate. Uh, essentially, everything that we built at Sparrow is partnered. You know, we partnered to bring it to clinic, 
Um, you know, our, our oral carbapenem, tebipenem, was is partnered with a, a Japanese firm that initially developed it uh, for a different indication. Um, you know, our NTM program comes from Vertex, and we're proud to partner with them to advance it as an example. Uh, also, every program that we advance has a partner. So our oral carbapenem is uh, partnered with BARDA, um, you know, which is helping us support the development of this. And in turn, we are supporting their vision and building a broad arsenal against future infectious threats. Uh, and our NTM program is partnered with the Gates Foundation, where we're partnered with them to explore what uh, 720 can do for TB patients in the developing world. And we're proud to work with them as well, as an example. And then 206 also partnered with the Department of Defense and with Everest Medicines in China. So, you know, we've had a lot of experience both being a partner and partnering. And what matters for us is folks that fit in with our, our values. I think a good partners uh, have a fundamental commitment to, you know, the building a better future for infectious disease. And so really believing in the power of the medicine and thinking about the broader implications of what we do. I think second is those that have a, you know, strong scientific and and commercial understanding of those patients that we're trying to serve. Uh, that is incredibly important. And then thirdly are those for with whom we can collaborate well. You know, our, our, our model uh, and our style at Sparrow is uh, very collaborative. Um, and we expect and we have and we're fortunate to have that type of collaborative relationship with our partners. And that's what works well. You know, med uh, developing drugs and medicine in general is a nonlinear uh, challenge that we have to face. And uh, in those settings, you know, my strong belief is in a nonlinear setting, you need more opinions rather than fewer uh, before you make a decision. It sounds like a lot of those qualities that make good partners for you and, and you a good partner to those companies, it sounds like probably a good number of those characteristics would be to also in the kinds of people you're looking to bring on onto your team full-time, what kinds of people, so to that point, what kinds of people thrive at Sparrow? The Sparrobe, as, as we call them, the, the you know, sort of mix between Sparrow and Microbe, uh, the, the Sparrow that, that really does well here is uh, mission-driven, right? And, and I think that, you know, it's with all of the twists and turns with drug development, if you don't get up in the morning because you can make patients feel better, ultimately because of your work, you're probably in the wrong business. And so, you know, the mission is such a strong uh, driver of what we do at Sparrow in terms of creating a better future for infectious disease medicine. So that's one. I think secondly is somebody that is humble. You know, humility is a, is a major uh, part of our core values at Sparrow. And humble means not necessarily sort of self-effacing, but it is having the humility to understand that you may not have the only good ideas in the room. And that humility lends itself to collaboration. It lends itself to intellectual curiosity. Uh, and it lends itself to really thinking rigorously through issues, you know, at, at all angles. Having the humility that your first instinct uh, may not capture everything and ensuring that you are, are doing it right. So, so really, these are folks that are curious, humble, and believe in a, in a world larger than themselves that they can make a difference in. When you're not dealing with the here and now and the day-to-day -day and all the details that are, require your attention, when you do have that moment from time to time to sit back and, and recall, this is why I'm doing this. If this company does the things I believe it will do, we're going to really do some good in the world. At what level do you picture that? How, how significant 
is the potential, do you think, for the work that you're doing? Well, I think that both in terms of the, the medicines we are developing and then the sum total of those medicines, the potential for Sparrow is vast. You know, really starting at a, at a, at a macro level, uh, infectious, infections touch everything we do. You know, every hip replacement, every chemotherapeutic dose assumes that we have effective inf- control uh, of, of microbial infection. And increasingly, that is not the case. Uh, so when we think about the vision of Sparrow, we believe that choosing the right products ultimately positions a company well for, for to be a leader. And we believe strongly in Tabby Penham and, and, and the rest of our pipeline's ability to touch many millions of patients' lives and also help us build Sparrow. And as we build Sparrow, uh, we have a vision to become a leader in the field and continue to build the, the pipeline, both late stage and, and early stage, over time. And, but again, it all starts with the success of the products that we have. And successful products build a platform to do even more good in the world, both by developing future medicines, uh, but also shaping the, 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 the infrastructure around infection. You know, now, more than ever, uh, there's, a, uh, I think, a realization that we, we likely haven't done enough in terms of comprehensively addressing uh, the infectious disease needs of society, you know, and, and we, we will, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that we will uh, prevail over coronavirus specifically, but nature doesn't stop. It's already cooking up the next infectious threat. So neither can we. And I think that the, the just the, the, the multifaceted impact that infection has had on our society of late really invites a re-examination of our priorities. And how do we prevent this from happening again? And so sort of going back to Sparrow's mission, we're inspired by, by really having a platform that can be a large part of that solution. Ultimately, what's required is sustained expertise in a forward-looking basis, continuing to improve what we can deliver to treat patients with infection. That has been our mission from day one, and we're committed now more than ever to do it. And what's required in terms of a long-term vision? You know, back in the 1950s and 60s, advances in uh, antibiotic development in particular really revolutionized the way that we uh, treat patients in the United States and in the world. And it's one of the drivers of, of, of you know, improvements in overall mortality in society in general. And I think that, you know, that spurred several decades of really fruitful research finding newer and newer ways to treat these infections. And over time, in part because the science is sometimes hard, we, we hit a wall, number one. And I think number two is that the, the you know, let's, let's pause there for a second. Um, you know, the infectious disease medicine has an added challenge relative to treating other diseases, which is that one needs to design a drug that can be delivered just as well to a prokaryotic organism the, the microbe or, or virus, while at the same time having good safety, potency, and, and tolerability to be in a human. And that dual challenge is, 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 uh, can be a difficult one. And so the science can be hard. I think secondly is that fundamentally um, we have not prioritized uh, infect- forward-looking infectious disease uh, from a policy or reimbursement perspective. And so that has sort of slowed down the flow of of novel medicines. I think that in particular that's exacerbated by the way we pay for hospital stays where, you know, number one and number two is the way that we pay for medicines generally. 
So at a macro level, I think number one is um, uh, we need to fix some of those cross incentives. So the worst infectious threat we're going to see is probably one that doesn't have that many patients suffering today. You know, before Feb, before January, uh, there weren't any coronavirus patients, right? So then the commercial incentive to develop coronavirus therapies was rather limited at the time. So, you know, there has to be a way to address that. The same is true for bacterial infections, whereby some infections for which we're creating future weapons don't happen all that often, fortunately. But that means that there's also not a market for them. And in, in, in this is in particular in the hospital, where on top of that, hospitals get a fixed payment no matter what, no matter how long the hospital stays, no matter what they use. So it's like the difference, and I remember this from being a government employee and a consultant, uh, when I was a government employee, I got a per diem for dinner. And when I was a consultant, I got reimbursed for my dinner up to a limit. And I definitely ate better as a consultant than as a per diem government employee. But the same is true, which is that hospitals are in this difficult position where if they're going to pay for an innovative drug, it's coming right out of their bottom line. And so there's a disincentive for innovation there as well. But at a macro level, so if we can fix the science hurdles, which I think I'm optimistic we can, uh, us and others are working on that, and there's pockets of infectious disease that need better incentives, which I'm confident will also happen. Ultimately, though, the real solution to having a comprehensive infer in infectious disease infrastructure is picking products that can sustain the types of institutions that need to be there to develop these new drugs. You know, all of the policy investments will help, but really you need what we call hero products, products that are broad enough to sustain and build companies. And what are these products historically? They're like Savaldi that helped build the next chapter of Gilead, like Cubicid, which really built Cubist into a leader. Um, other things, Zybox and, and, and others that, that really uh, help build a franchise that allows us to go ahead. So it goes back to our fundamental uh, mission at Sparrow, which is pick good products that allow um, the breadth to be able to build a leader in the field. And given that Tebby Penham both reimbursed outside of the hospital and affecting the lives of at least 2 million patients a year, it's broad enough for us to, to help fulfill that vision. So, you know, my long answer, the short one is, if we pick good products and then we have complementary public incentives for those medicines that are socially critical but privately unprofitable, like IV medicines in the hospital and those for future infectious threats, we're going to be in excellent shape. And the current crisis that we're in invites a deep re-examination of how we've systematically approached that. And, and I think that, you know, the analogy that I use, you know, it was a former Homeland Security official giving his take on Corona, you know, we still take off our shoes at the airport in relation to something that happened uh, almost 20 years ago. I think coronavirus is going to change the way we think about investing in, in, in our defense against infection forever. And good products are part of that solution. And so is smart policy. Infectious disease seems to be the kind of thing that is a global problem, as we're learning right now. Uh, how does one adapt a system of payments and a system of incentives that's based on you know, where we live and, and in other parts of the world where those systems are developed? How does one then connect that with a, a global need? Well, I think what you're asking about is, is, is you know, the, the virus um, is attacking our society globally. Yet we are attacking it back often in a in a regional basis, you know. And, and I think that um, there's some 
uh, I think that that's absolutely necessary and coordination at the international level is critical. You know, now more than ever, you know, we do need organizations that have a international reach to really help us share information and, and coordinate. I think that at least as it relates to uh, how we think about su- some of these policy supports for antibacterials, I, I think that there, there actually are some excellent ideas around the world, and in particular in the U.S. and in Europe, that, that sort of uh, try to find that balance. And so I, I'm actually very uh, pleased with the global response to the policy challenges that, that, that have impacted how comprehensive we can be in affecting um, uh, uh, treatment for infection. So, so, you know, with all of the barriers that there are to international coordination, uh, I think there has been a very good international dialogue uh, at places like Davos and among the G7 and, and both in the UK and in mainland Europe and the US that's been uh, pretty thoughtful. And now we just need the wherewithal to take that next step. The good ideas are there. We just need to act on one of them. And in the meantime, though, as I, as I mentioned, what's required on a global basis is that companies like ours and others pick the right products, succeed with them, because we need to be part of the solution. As much as uh, government can incentivize, they are not drug developers. Ultimately, drug developers have to come together and maintain the right expertise to be uh, ready. I, I think for us as, as a, a team of drug developers, uh, we build the base on those infectious disease needs that are here today. So when we think about patients with complicated UTI that need oral options, uh, there are two million today, right? So, so we build the base with those unmet needs uh, that exist today. Right, that help us build the momentum as a company that's necessary to take a comprehensive approach to infection. Then we move from there, and this is a good example of our pipeline. You know, we, we focused our efforts on Tebby Penum and SPR 720 for NTM disease. Uh, those are needs that exist today uh, that need solutions. If we could maybe wave a magic wand and get both drugs approved, um, there would be millions of people and, and, and you know, many thousands on the NTM side that would be eligible today. Then we build from there to our commitment to public health. And so we do that with collaborators. So as an example, um, SPR 206 is an IV agent that treats uh, serious infections, including Acinetobacter and Pseudomonas. And because 206 is focused on the hospital and um, Pseudomonas and Acinetobacter are important problems, but aren't necessarily broad enough to be sustainable on their own, we collaborate. So we can collaborate with the Department of Defense we collaborate with Everest Medicines to ensure that we have the wherewithal uh, to both put our talents to the use of this important need, but also balance that with product sustainability. Uh, in addition, um, for 720, we're partnered with Gates to explore the public health opportunities that 720 allows for tuberculosis. So the, the big picture is focus, build the base on sustainable products and then collaborate both with public and private organizations to advance the ball forward for public health needs. You know, that, that, that is uh, consistent with the, the, the vision that we had when we, when we built this place. What are we learning as a society about how to keep going uh, during, this, uh, during this process? Uh, here I am today working from my home studio, and, and yet we're carrying on, and uh, we're all looking forward to going back to work. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, and certainly we've seen it firsthand amongst our team, but then just also generally, um, 
you know, there, there's uh, this uh, crisis that we've been in has tested our resilience um, in a way that nothing else has, uh, in particular because of the unpredictability and the prolonged nature of it. And we've been through crises before, but they, they don't often, uh, you can't see this enemy, number one. And number two, you don't know when this enemy is going away. And I've been inspired, certainly, you know, at Sparrow by folks that uh, continue to go above and beyond, not just do their jobs, but then go the extra mile, even though, you know, so many things we take for granted. When are the kids going to school next? How am I getting groceries for the family without exposing myself? I'm sick. Do I even want to go to the doctor? Things that we take for granted every day, we put aside and we're able to deliver. And, and I speak for, you know, all the folks in the community we see, and especially, uh, you know, our heart goes out to those frontline workers, certainly my, you know, our colleagues in the infectious disease community that are on the front lines, uh, folks like Helen Boucher and others in, here in Boston, um, but also the simplest folks, the folks that take out our trash, folks that, you know, check me out at the grocery store. Um, they are enabling our way of life and doing so with the resilience that's um, amazing, uh, particularly because I know, and you know, comparing notes with my clinician colleagues, it's frightening to go to work every day, something as simple as going to work every day. So I, I think that it's, you know, despite all of the, you know, negative news that may, one may read, I am uh, inspired by the resilience, uh, both of our community in, in pharma, our community at Sparrow, but just our community at large. We're finding a way to uh, persevere and I think that what's going to help us continue is to just realize, mourn, and admit that life's not going to be the same after this for some time, if ever. And, you know, I think that rather than go back to, quote, the way it was, we can all focus on how to make it the way it should be going forward. And, and for us here at Sparrow, we're going to try to do our part, both in terms of modeling how we think it should be in terms of how we work together, uh, as well as continuing to develop our medicines, because that's going to be part of the solution. Ankit, thanks for making time to speak with me today. It was a pleasure, John. Thank you so much. Ankit Mahadevia has a seemingly unquenchable thirst for knowledge. He's seen the world of healthcare through the lenses of both biology and health economics, and his multifaceted perspective may have something to do with his approach to leadership and why he values both input and contradiction. At the same time, Ankit guides Sparrow Therapeutics towards development of drugs for patients with multi-drug resistant bacterial infections, his eyes are also focused over the horizon on the global threat of infectious diseases. Ankit's vision is that we can learn from the coronavirus pandemic. Rather than go back to the way it was, we can focus on how to make it the way it should be going forward. He reminds us the worst infectious threat we're going to see in the future is probably one that doesn't have many patients suffering today. That's why he thinks the time is now to change forever the way we think about investing in our defense against infection and building the sustained expertise needed to improve what we can deliver to treat patients with infection. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss.